Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. For me, the apotheosis of how horrible modern exercise is is the treadmill. I mean, you know, it's why it's on the cover. It's why I kind of use it throughout the book as a kind of a, a kind of a running joke. But think about it. It's a horrible, noisy, nasty, expensive machine that makes you work really hard to get nowhere. You know, the way to, to tolerate a treadmill is to either listen to something, listen to some good music, listen to a podcast, watch something, but nobody can tolerate it on its own, at least not for more than a few minutes. I mean, it's it's a form of torture. It's And actually, that's kind of one of the jokes, because the treadmill was actually invented as a form of torture. That's Harvard anthropology professor Dan Lieberman. And in case it sounds like he's anti-exercise, here's the full title of the book he's just written, Exercised. Why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. An avid runner himself, Dan takes an entertaining look at what most of our ancestors would have thought was crazy. Voluntary physical activity. This is going to be fun because you deal with a subject I cope with every day, (laughs) along with millions of of other people. Well, that's why I wrote it. It was eye-opening in many ways, uh, the book you wrote. And I think... One of the things that I hadn't thought about before is kind of the essence of the book, which is the difference between exercise and movement. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, you know, it's how I started the book, right? Um, that, you know, we, you know, we all do physical activity. That's, that's something that humans have been doing for millions of years and every other animal does. It's just moving around, doing stuff. Um, but, uh, but exercise is really a very special kind of modern, strange form of physical activity that nobody ever did until recently because it's 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 dif- it's voluntary it's discretional physical activity for the sake of health and fitness and um and until recently nobody had to do that so it's it's something we've invented in the modern world along with reading and various other things we never did before too the other thing that you say that is so interesting is that you really can't get a good grasp of exercise or movement unless you look at it from the point of view of evolution and anthropology, both. Yeah, yeah. And that, and you've really spent your life doing that. Well, I've, I've had the, really the good fortune to, to be paid to travel uh, and spend time uh, with people in different parts of the world and different cultures. Because if you want to have a, a, an understanding of what the human body really is like and, and what we're evolved for and, and uh, how people use their bodies, we have to leave, you know, Boston, Massachusetts, and other places like that, and and travel to other parts of the world and spend time with people and and observe and and participate and and you know see how 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 really other people use their bodies. It's it's eye opening. I I remember a scene in the book where 
a member of one of these tribes and looked at you like you were crazy when you said you ran for no particular reason. <laughs> you know, it, sometimes these moments happen, but that was really the moment I thought about writing this book because I was I was working with um, some some Tarahumara farmers. So these are subsistence farmers. Um, they they grow corn and 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 beans and and squash and up in the up in the very remote area of, of northern Mexico. And they're also very famous for their long distance running. And I was traveling around and collecting data on running. And 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 I had you know being the good anthropologist, I had my list of questions. And and one of my questions was about how they train for running. And I was told that this guy I was interviewing was a famous old old elderly runner. He was in his 70s and can still run like 50 miles, right? And so um, I was working with a translator, and 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 he wasn't the first person who struggled with this question because the translator was clearly having a hard time you know, conveying this particular question, which is training, because it turns out there's no word for training in this language um, <laughs> because nobody does it. And so when she finally explained that this gringo, you know, who's, who's asking him questions, you know, he runs up five miles every morning to stay in shape and to prepare for races, he looked at me. I mean, I remember it was like one of those moments. He looked at me kind of with pity and he said, and he asked, and he said to her, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And it was kind of one of those moments when I realized, yeah, you know, I guess what I do, you know, to stay fit is a very modern, strange thing. And and until recently, you know, nobody did that. It's um, and and that was kind of the the moment I thought, you know, that's going to be my next book. Well, we I get the impression we're sort of forced into the idea of running, not because we're chasing or being chased, but we 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 have to make up for the fact that we have a washing machine, <laughs> we have a car, yeah, we have we have things that do for us what your friend in the mountains there, he had to exert himself to accomplish. That's absolutely right. I mean, until recently, people had to, you know, do physical activity all the time in order to survive, including as they got older. You know, people, there was no retirement in the, in the, in the old days. People, people worked until, until they dropped, right? And, and, um, and now we have so many labor-saving devices. We have cars, we have shopping carts, we have our suitcases are on wheels, we have escalators, <laughs> elevators, we have electric toothbrushes, electric can openers, I mean, Zumbas to clean our floors. I mean, so today in this very bizarre modern world, we have to choose to do unnecessary physical activity, right? Um, like sometimes, for example, you go to a building and you, if you want to take the stairs, you have to actually kind of look for them. It's kind of harder to take the stairs than than to take the elevator. Uh, so, so we, you know, that's a very modern, recent thing, and 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 we and and but it's also very ancient to kind of not want to take the stairs, right? I, I bet if you put an escalator in in the Copper Canyons where where my friend was, or or in the Kalahari Desert, you know, people there would take the escalator too, you know, to save energy. It's it's an instinct, and I think I think it's important because uh, you know a lot of people feel bad about themselves today, right? People feel feel shamed and blamed for for basic instincts. You know, if we take the escalator. So we feel kind of bad about ourselves. Like, oh my God, I'm a lazy person. Yeah, but, but I not... don't take the stairs because the suitcase with wheels doesn't go up the stairs. <laughs> well, that's another reason too. Yeah, but the point um... is, you know, we're, we're made to feel like there's something wrong with us, but actually it's totally normal and instinctive to want to to, to save energy because... Yeah, that, so that's we... a point of view you, you just don't hear often and it, yeah. it's, it's empathic. It, it, it sounds to me like a way to to communicate more effectively about the whole question of if we're going to get healthier by moving more, how can we get us to do it? Right. Yeah. We need to be compassionate. And look, 
according to the government statistics, only about 20% of Americans um, get the kind of very basic levels of physical activity that, that, that every organization on the planet suggests, which is 150 minutes a week. And, 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 and the methods that we've been employing in our world today to get people to be more active are either to medicalize it, right, to, to prescribe it, or to commercialize it, you know, to sell it, to commodify it. And, you know, the answer is, we, we already have the answer. It doesn't work very well. It doesn't work for 80% of us. You know, just do it, for example. I mean, think about that, you know, that, that, that slogan, which is emblazoned on so many t-shirts and stuff like that. And, you know, just do it. If you think about it, it's, it's, it's not really very helpful. Um, uh, you know, it's great if you already do it. But it, to me, to me, it's a bit like um, like Nancy Reagan telling you know people who have addictions to uh, just say no, right? It it, right. it it just it wasn't helpful. Yeah, and the, the desire to do it is so clear when you see the upsurge in memberships at gyms on January second. <laughs> yeah, and then they and tail then off the, <laughs> the, the empty gyms on February first. Yeah, well, but that's but but think about it. I mean, look, I get to go to this gym nearby. It's actually one of the oldest gyms in the in the country and here at Harvard. And um and you know, rarely do I go to the gym and see anybody enjoying themselves. You know. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, and for me the apotheosis of how horrible modern exercise is is the treadmill. I mean, you know, it's why it's on the cover, it's why I kind of use it throughout the book as a kind of a, a kind of a running joke, but but think about it. It's a horrible, noisy, nasty, expensive machine that makes you work really hard to get nowhere. I mean, do you know anybody who actually likes running on a treadmill? I mean, maybe a few people, but there, there must be very few and far between. Um, yeah, I see some people who seem to be hypnotized while they're doing it. They, I can't tell whether they're enjoying it or not. Well, they're, they're probably just... listening to your podcast. So, yeah. right? and, and, <laughs> that would, that and, would hypnotize anybody. <laughs> well, at least your it, eyes it, are it getting sleepy. the pain because, you know, to, way to, to tolerate a treadmill is to either listen to something, listen to some good music, listen to a podcast, watch yeah. something, but nobody can tolerate it on its own, at least not for more than a few minutes. I mean, it's it's a form of torture. It's And actually, that's kind of one of the jokes, because the treadmill was actually invented as a form of torture. It was invented... Yeah, yes, that's I've learned that reading your book. <laughs> tell, tell me again about that. Yeah, so William Cubitt uh, was a British, uh, uh, you know, invented it for the Victorian prison system. Um, so because, you know, back then with debtors' prisons and, and stuff, you know, uh, the... You know, they didn't want it. They wanted to make sure that that prisoners in these Victorian prisons weren't, you know, relaxing and enjoying themselves. So they created these huge, sort of step-like treadmills that people had to trudge on for hours and hours a day. Um, um, it was meant to make people unhappy, and um, and and let's be honest, they still do. So if. There's no point in running unless you have to. <laughs> Why did we develop running? One I reason mean, we had run. bananas. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is bananas don't run away, so you don't need to run after a banana. My but, point exactly. Exactly, but 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 what? But if you want to be a carnivore, unfortunately, most of the the, the animals that you want to eat they do run away. So you got to. <laughs> yeah. It's so very hard be able to be a carnivore without running, if you think about it, right? And so it turns out that around sometime between three and two million years ago, our ancestors started eating meat. And it turns out that also all those these adaptations in our bodies, literally from our from our heads to our toes, that make us superlative long distance runners, evolved around that time. So we've never been good at sprinting. We're never very fast, but we are exceptional at going long distances. And that long distance running enables us to to chase animals, either either chase them into a state of heat stroke, 
or to chase them into into traps or to towards other hunters, etc. And 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 enabled us to do what we call persistence hunting. And 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 we did this for millions of years before we invented technologies like the bow and arrow or even even points on the end of a spear were invented only five hundred thousand years ago. So back in the day, if you wanted to get some meat for dinner or some marrow for dinner, you had to you had to run in order to get it. And and we have the traces of that ancient those ancient adaptations in our bodies today. I read in your book about this ligament we have that helps keep our heads still while we're running. So I guess they don't flop from side to side. Is that is that an indicator? Can you trace that in skulls and know yeah. when that occurred? Yeah, that's called the nuchal ligament, and uh, it's a it's this really interesting kind of tendon-like band, actually, that runs on the back of your head. And every time you're, you're, you, when you're running and, you're, and you hit the ground, your head wants to pitch forward, right? But because your head is, is unbalanced, right? You're, if you fall asleep, for example, during a lecture, right, your chin hits your chest, right? Your, your head isn't totally balanced. So your head wants to pitch forward every time you hit the ground. But the second, just, just before your head hits the ground, your, your foot hits the ground, excuse me, your, 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 you turn on a little muscle in your neck, which connects the mass of your arm to your head via this ligament. And so as your head wants to fall down, your arm also accelerates downwards, and the mass of your arm weighs about the same as your head, and it just automatically pulls your head back with the same amount of force as your head wants to pitch forward. Our gluteus maximus is another one. You know, that's a, that's a stabilizer. So the, uh, you know, the largest muscle in the human body is the butt, right? And it's actually a stabilizer for running. You don't really use it when you walk. You don't, you know, it's, it's a running muscle, actually. Mm. Um, and, our, and our inner ears have, have our extra, our expanded sort of rate gyros in our heads to help us stabilize our heads. We have all kinds of features for stabilization. Now, one of the big problems with running is not so much the energy, it's actually not falling over, right? Stability is really, <laughs> right. is really critical for, for running. And if you're a biped, you know, you're just less stable than a quadruped, right? How often do you see a, a dog trip, right? They don't trip very often, but humans, we're, you know, just one little perturbation and down we go. And the interesting thing about that, that's not readily apparent, a human running after a much faster animal, an antelope, I mean, you wouldn't imagine... Just on, at first glance, thinking it'd be possible for no. somebody like us to run down an antelope. That's right, because because the antelope is way faster, right? I mean, the, the, a typical antelope is about twice as fast as a world class sprinter, but an a, an endurance runner can 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 run really long distances. You know, we're not going very fast, but eventually you can. That antelope can't just keep up, can't keep it up, and overheats. And um, in the book, I describe. I, of course, I don't, I've never run down any antelopes, but I did. I did participate in this man against horse race. Kind now, of yeah, I, this my... is amazing. I, you, <laughs> how did you get into a race against horses? <laughs> well, you know, I've been writing about this stuff for years. I mean, Dennis Bramble and I published that paper in Nature in two thousand and four, arguing that humans evolved to run long distances um, um, for for persistence hunting. And I kept getting invited by various people to you know chase antelopes in various places. But I'm, <laughs> it wasn't really something I really wanted to do. Plus, the the real trick to that kind of hunting is the tracking. It's not the running. But but there are these these races. There's one in Wales, but the older one is actually in Arizona. And um, I had kind of investigated it for the book. And every once in a while, I get on their website because they publish the the data every year from the. It's like a little mom and pop race. It was started by a sheriff and a local you know equestrian you know in a saloon. You know they had and 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 the and the runner bet the sheriff that he could beat him. You know running over this mountain. Um, and, uh, so of course they, they did it and, and it's become a little tradition and now it's, 
It's been going on for like something like 30 or so years. And so I just had to, I had to try, right? I'm, I like running. I'm a, I'm a long distance runner. I like to do marathons. So I, I signed up and I just went. And So what was it like? You start was, off at the starting line, you and the horses <laughs> all lined up? Yeah. So it's, it starts at six in the morning and, and, and the guy who times it uses his wife's you know, kitchen clock, he puts it in a tree and at 6 a.m. <laughs> off you go. And if you've ever started a race with a bunch of horses, you you get very depressed very quickly because because of course within a you know a few you know a few minutes all the horses had passed all the runners. I mean they, they were they were gone. Like they're big and they're fast, right? And my daughter had bet me that I couldn't beat a single horse. So you know it gets hotter and hotter. It's Arizona. It's October, and uh, you kind of run over this big mountain called Mount Mount Ming, Mount Mingus and. Um, and I, just, I got really depressed because there were no horses in sight for, for 18 miles. Um, and I'm just like huffing and puffing along and trying to get over this mountain. And it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then at mile 18, I passed my first horse. And, and what's, what happens is that the horses get too hot and, they, and, they're, and, they're, and they're, their pulse gets too high. And, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and the riders have to stop them. Otherwise, the horses will get seriously damaged. And, and actually, by mile 20, I'd passed almost all the horses. And, and I have to tell you, I had the biggest runner's high of my life because then I ran down the mountain. And I'm a good downhill runner and I love running down. And, and there are like these switchbacks. You know, you could go really fast on the switchbacks compared to what a horse, because a horse can't do switchbacks easily. And I just flew, and I, I had the biggest runner's high of my life. So I, you know, I'm a middle-aged runner. I'm not particularly fast. Um, I ran a four four twenty marathon, which is a very mediocre time. But I beat all but thirteen of the horses in the, in the race. There were, <laughs> there were fifty something. There were fifty something horses, and I beat all but thirteen. So um, so I, that was just like super exciting. I just loved it. And and by the way, I should answer. I should tell you this. The horses get a veterinary break, so they they stop the horses, and a vet checks them all to make sure they're not like about to die, and that time is subtracted from their time. But we runners, you know, we get, we human beings, we didn't get any like medical checkup, so the horses get kind of a little bit of a little extra help. When we come back from our break, Dan Lieberman debunks some of the myths about exercise, including one I wish he hadn't. After this. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. 
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dan Lieberman. I love that you've devoted time to debunking myths about movement and exercise. Like the the one that's very common now, that our chairs are trying to kill us. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why I, maybe it was a little harsh in that chapter, but, you know, I, I think one of the reasons people are so skeptical about science is that we sometimes oversimplify it. And we, you know, when we scare people, right? And to say that running is, you know, sitting is the new smoking, which is which has become a very common phrase. I understand that the, the, the impetus behind it, right? You know, people who sit too much do, do you know, pay a cost. It's, it's, it's good to be physically active, but, but, you know, a chair is not like a, like a cigarette. I mean, a cigarette's a toxin, you know, that you inhale. I mean, everybody knows cigarettes are bad for you. But sitting is a perfectly normal thing to do. My, my dog spends her days, spend, you know, in the house just sitting all over the place. And if you go into a hunter-gatherer camp or, you know, a, a village of farmers in, anywhere in the world, people are sitting all the time. Um, so, the, you know, clearly anybody who's got a, uh, you know, a little bit of spark of independence must realize that, that, that they're being exaggerated too, right? And, and I think we need to tell people the truth. And turns out that when you measure, you know, sitting in, in, in people who don't even own chairs, right? The hunter-gatherers who own no furniture whatsoever, they sit, you know, 10 hours a day as much as you and I do. But you point out that the, th- the way they sit is not as uh, harmful as the way we sit. I mean, you right. even make a distinction between a stool and a chair with a back. That's right. So there are there are better and worse ways to sit. And the two things is one is that they sit more actively in the sense that they're either sitting on the ground or they don't have backrests on their chairs or their you know or stools or or benches and and that requires them to use a little bit of muscle effort and that that just even a little bit of muscle effort turns out to be really good. It's like turning your car engine on, right? It turns on all kinds of genes. It uses up some of the sugar in your bloodstream. And then the other thing is that they get up all the time. You know, you, you, mm. nobody's sitting in front of a TV, you know, glued to, you know, a, a great movie. Maybe you're in the movie, right? But, um, 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 but you know. Uh, then nobody... I don't even get up to get a cookie. Are you kidding? <laughs> right. But, you know, nobody's sitting there for hours, you know, just staring at a screen, right? They, they have to get up because, you know, their children are running around. They have to mind the fire. They're doing this. They're doing that. So people get up on a regular basis every 15 minutes or so. And it turns out that's really good because it kind of wakes up your body again. And, and so interrupted sitting views. You can sit the same amount. Two people can sit for, for several hours. But the person who sits and gets up every once in a while, even over that same time period, just to go to the bathroom, get a cup of tea, something like that, has a much healthier outcome than the person who sits exactly the same amount of time, but in an uninterrupted bout. Mm. Another myth that has grown, apparently, is the idea that you can't lose weight by Uh walking. Yeah. Yeah, this is still controversial. Um, So what's your take on that? So... Look, it is true that if you want to lose weight, dieting is way more effective than exercise. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because for two reasons. The first is that, like, I went for a, a five-mile run this morning, and I burned about 500 calories. Um, 
And, you know, if I eat just a few pieces of bacon, that's the same amount of calories, right? It's, you know, it takes a lot of effort to, to burn a lot of calories, but it's much easier just not to eat a few pieces of bacon, right? So, so if, if you want to lose weight by, by going into what we call negative energy balance, you can go into much more negative energy balance much more easily by dieting than exercising. So that's one reason. And then the other is, if that once I got back from my run, I was hungry. <laughs> so I, I ate something, right? I, I, we have what's called metabolic compensation. You, you, you don't you know, you make up for some of that. <clears throat> and it also may have some effects on your metabolism. And the third issue is is most of the studies that are done. So remember, we talked about earlier that the standard recommendation for, for minimum levels of physical activity is 150 minutes a week. So what do people do when they're studying weight loss? They they get people on that 150 minutes a week, you know, regimen, which is just 21 minutes a day of, of exercise, at, at like a brisk walk. And they do it for just a few weeks because, you know, nobody can do a study for very long. And guess what they find? They find that people don't lose very much weight if you watch, if you walk 21 minutes a day. But if you actually have people do, you know, like 40 minutes a day, like with 300 minutes a week, it turns out people do lose weight. And if you have even more, people do lose even more weight. So it turns out that the dose really matters. And um, so you, you're never going to be able to lose a lot of weight really fast by exercising. But many, many, many studies Gold standard randomized control studies show that people can lose weight slowly, surely, not rapidly, um, by by exercising. And even more importantly, the, what the, what the data show us is that physical activity, exercise, is important for preventing weight gain in the first place. Because most diets fail, right? People lose the weight, and then whoosh, it comes right back, right? And but 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 people who exercise. Uh, during and or after the diet, especially after the diet, are much more likely to keep that weight off. That, that's remarkable. And that even is true if you're only doing 21 minutes a day? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're not going to get as much of a benefit from 21 minutes a day as if you do more, but even 21 minutes a day is important. But and even then, you know, I think we also pay a little bit too much. We, you know, we, we tie exercise too much to weight, I think. Um, 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 and, and that a lot of people kind of feel, well, if I'm not going to lose weight, why should I exercise? Right. Um, but but, you know, the, the benefits of exercise are independent of the weight loss. You can, even if you don't manage to lose a lot of weight, even if you only exercise 10 minutes a day, so 60 minutes a week, the evidence shows that there's still a substantial benefit in terms of many diseases that you might otherwise get in terms of, you know, what we call mortality and morbidity, the rate at which you're likely to die and, and, the, and the chronic illnesses which you're, which you're, which you're more vulnerable to. So, so even, even 10 minutes a day of just moderate physical activity uh, can lower somebody's rate of mortality by about 30%. That's, that's huge. That's enormous. So uh, even, uh, even a little bit is, is great, even if you don't lose any weight. Now, here's a myth that I wish you hadn't debunked. I, it's personal to me. The myth that older people should cut back on exercise. <laughs> I'm so How sorry. dare you? What, what, are you? what are you trying to do to me here? Well, look, we have this idea in the West that as we get older, you know, it's time to kick up your feet and, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, retire to Florida or whatever, which obviously you have not done. But, you know, we're, we're an interesting species. You know, most species don't live after they stop reproducing. Um, the only other species we know that does that actually is, is, is our orcas, killer whales. Um, and, and, and we, like them, we live after we stop reproducing for a good, you know, two decades or so. And, and the reason we do that, the reason evolution selected for that is so that we could help 
provision and take care of our children and our grandchildren, right? So when you, if you're a grandparent and you're hunter-gatherer, you're not just, you know, sitting in camp, you know, waiting for your, the kids to come home. You actually go out every day and you forage. You hunt, you gather, you get honey. You help in camp, you help with the kids, you help cook, you do various things. You're very physically active. And in fact, the evidence is that that physical activity sometimes can be higher in grandparents than in parents because they're, you know, they're not saddled with children. And, and furthermore, that physical activity is really important because the physical activity turns on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms, which help slow senescence. So we know that physical activity helps you know, keep your DNA from um, you know, accruing mutations. It, it produces antioxidants that, that, that decrease the reactive oxygen species that are causing you know, crud to build up in your cells. It, 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 um, it turns on um, uh, enzymes that repair your bones and your muscles and helps you generate new muscle. It keeps you from being frail. And I mean, the list is like amazingly long of all these repair and maintenance things. And the thing is that you know, we, don't, we never evolved to turn them on as much in the absence of exercise or physical activity, I should say, because nobody ever was physically inactive. Um, so, so we never evolved to kind of turn down inflammation, turn down all these other things without, without using physical activity. Here's an interesting fact. So I'm sorry, I'm going on a little don't, bit. But, don't please do. But, but you know, we, we all know everybody's been hearing about inflammation recently. Inflammation is when your immune system kind of you know, basically attacks your own body, and it happens at a very low level. Smoking is really bad for you, partly because it's inflammatory. You know, you know obesity is inflammatory. Um, the major organ that produces anti-inflammatory molecules are your muscles. Your muscles produce the vast majority of the molecules that turn down inflammation, but they only do it when you're active. So, so being physically active keeps us from in causing inflammation, which is the cause of cancer, heart disease, diabetes, a wide range of problems. And that's why physical activity is so important uh, throughout life, but especially as we age, because it prevents senescence. But here's the problem for me. All of these health benefits are happening under the hood. I'm not seeing the results. There's no ocular proof. Yeah, I don't get the feedback and I don't get the encouragement to go on. It doesn't light up my reward circuits, that, what nothing like sitting does. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's because we never evolved to have to. Look, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons only, right? For when it was necessary, right? Like you have to, if you don't go out and get, get food, your children will starve or your grandchildren will starve. So grandpa, go out and get food, damn it, or we're going to die, right? And, and then the other reason we evolved to be physically active was when it's rewarding. That's when it's fun, right? So dancing, maybe, or, or, or you know, other things, you know, that, that, that make it fun. And, and we've created all kinds of other ways to have fun today that don't require any physical activity, um, and like, you know, watching movies and stuff, which I, I enjoy as much as everybody else. But uh, so we have to, so if we want to help people be physically active, especially as we age, we have to find ways to make it necessary and rewarding. And, and you know, one of my favorite things, I, I like to go to Mexico because I do some work there. And, and in a lot of Mexican towns, I've, you know, they have, in the evenings, people just come out and the musicians strike up a tune and people dance. Mm. And often you see elderly couples lighting up the, you know, the, the floor, you know, with their, with their dance moves. And it's physical activity and it's delightful and it's wonderful and it's free and it's, you know, we should do more of that. Um, it would be lovely and people would be happier. Well, I'm going to look for more things that are fun to do that involve movement. Yeah. 
And usually it's social, right? Like going for a walk with friends or going for a run with friends or dancing. And, you know, you know again, that, go back to the treadmill. Think about that solitary person plugged into, you know, <laughs> his or her, you know, earbuds, you know, listening to maybe this podcast, right? I mean, you know, it makes it tolerable, but it's, it's, it's not intrinsically fun. But if you were out with a bunch of friends walking or gossiping or, you know, talking about a good book you read or whatever, that's fun. Well, I love tennis, and as the weather gets better, Perfect. I'll be hitting the ball more. And it's a great sport for, for the COVID era, too. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're not so close together. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't do wrestling during this. <laughs> yeah, wrestling with a mask doesn't, doesn't quite <laughs> seem to work. Not, uh, not my idea of fun. So our time to talk together is coming to an end, but we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Okay. The, the generally in, in the area of communication, but in a vague way. Here's the first question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I really, I, I mean, I, I, that's a tough question. I mean, there are a lot of things I really wish I understood. Um, in terms of the research that I do, I think I, what I really wish I would, I could understand a better way to help motivate people uh, to exercise, because that seems to me one of the the most important problems uh, that face our, our planet. Right? We need, we need how to help people, how to how to motivate people, and and we still don't really understand that. I think I understand why people don't do it, but how to actually do it without being coercive, I still don't understand. Do you have any plans for research into that about how you can? Yeah, how we're, you can we're, help. Yeah, we're actually starting a project here at Harvard to um, to see if we can, you know, we're going to, you know, a co bunch of colleagues and I are actually working together to see if we can try some new ideas um, and um, and use use and, and use the students here as a kind of a, a data set, you know, to collect data to see uh, to see what works better. So because we Harvard has a system of houses where we actually we have a random randomizing system already. We randomize students into thirteen different houses, so we can compare different um, different strategies in different houses with a sort of preset randomized control samples. So we're we're going to try that and see what see what we can do, what we you know what works better than others. That's great. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> well, I've learned as I've gotten older that, that you basically sometimes it's, there's no point. You just got to <laughs> smile <laughs> and realize that uh, shake your head um, I think you, I've learned uh, slowly over the years that the, that you know just telling them that they're wrong is usually doesn't work, right? You have to try to understand where they're coming from and try to talk with them and, and figure out their motivation and and slowly maybe you can uh, you can you can change their 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 minds about about data and and ideas because we're we're coming into a world where not only ideas are 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 are, are controversial but but just basic data basic facts yeah um, and uh, and I think we need to be much more sensitive to that if we're going to uh, counter anti scientific anti empirical views. Third question: What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Um. I'd, I'd have to think about that one. I'm not sure. I'm sure I've been asked some pretty strange ones. Um, I'm stumped. Sorry. Some people are stumped. I think it's because they don't regard any question as strange. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, my gosh. Well, I come from a family of compulsive talkers, so uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to get in trouble for even just saying that. So um, so if if 
if you're a, if it's in my family, you just talk louder than them. <laughs> that, but that doesn't work on everybody. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, um, if you have any advice, please let me know. I could I could use it. You know, I think it's different with everybody. I try to pick up on something they said and get really interested in that and just enter, enter the conversation so that they have to stop looking off to the left where, where they're really addressing their, yeah. their mind, you know, their mind's thoughts, and get them to talk to me so that I can ask them more questions and it can start to resemble a conversation. Right. But it never really gets to be a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table when that becomes more common and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? I find that the best thing to do is to ask them about themselves. People love to talk about themselves and it's usually a way to get something started. I and mean, it can be anything as trivial as, you know, how did you get here? Or that's an interesting brooch you're wearing or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, I find that most people uh, relax as soon as they start talking about themselves. And then, and then that, can, that can often lead to something else. Good. Next to last, what gives you confidence? Oi. That's the best answer I got so far. Oi. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to find a really group of insecure people, yeah, go go hang out. Go to the faculty room of any university, right? Uh, professors, <laughs> academics are are very insecure people, right? We're we're, we're pretty um, unconfident of ourselves, and and but but also pretty good at hiding it. And I have to tell you, um, uh, I'm no different. I'm a I'm 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 typical uh, academic, but I've found that one of the things that's really kind of helped me uh, as I age, actually, to be and this, I know this sounds a little, little kind of trite given the conversation topic about my my book, uh, but really, actually, it's been it's been a long distance running. Um, it's hard to run a marathon, and. Um, and there's a point at every marathon where it gets really difficult and you have to kind of overcome it. And I remind myself that it's a privilege to have to kind of do that. And and um, and that's really, I think, played over into my life in general. I, I realized that, um, you know, when things are difficult and when they're problematic, there's a reason that they're difficult and problematic. And I remind, try to remind myself that it's a privilege to try to have to work through it. It's a privilege to have to solve that problem. And uh, and that I think I find that helps me. It gives me confidence to go to go on. I realize that every everybody else feels has these problems too, and and um, and it's really about it's really about caring that matters. So that may be a key to how we can face that moment where we say, "Should I go sit down for fifteen minutes, or should I walk up the stairs a few times?" Well, and you know how I do that. that. Moment, do you get that you face with that difficulty? Well, yeah. How do you do it? How do you handle it? I have a secret weapon there, right? Uh, so, so my office is on the the top floor of the of the Peabody Museum. It's five very steep fly, floors to get to the top, right? And every single day I get to the building, I I want to take the elevator. I have a little battle with myself, right? Because of course I want to take the elevator. I'm a normal person, but the reason I don't take the elevator is that if anybody catches me on the elevator, I'll be called out as a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that helps me. That helps me. Give me the motivation to take the stairs, and I'm always glad that I took the stairs in the end. But my but my initial motivation is basically my sense of self dignity. Okay, last question: What book changed your life? Mm, 
There's quite a few, but here's here's one that that really had a huge effect on me. Is a wonderful book by Robertson Davies, um, which I read when I was in a postdoc, and I was very sick in Nairobi, amoebic dysentery. I'll just it wasn't very fun anyway. And I was kind of miserable and, you know, I was feeling kind of bad about the world and and my place in it and where I was going and all that. And it's a wonderful, beautiful book called uh, What's Bread in the Bone, which is kind of about how you know, adversity breeds resilience. And it's about art and science and and, and humanity. And, and, um, and the, the book actually kind of crystallized for me uh, just how important, um, you know, how we deal with life's difficult events, because we all uh, suffer them. And, and recently, I, I've actually gotten very interested in, in Stoicism. And, and, and so I've been reading a lot of Stoic philosophy, which is, you know, also about the same, same idea. You know, it's not, it's not really, you know, you can't really control the world around you, but you can control how you respond to the world around you. And, and, I, think, um, and I think we don't often think enough about that. And I, so I try to think about that on a regular basis. Well, you've given me a lot to think about today, and I appreciate the time you took to talk with me. It was really an, really an interesting conversation. Well, I and had a lovely time, too. It's, it's practical, too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dan Lieberman is a paleoanthropologist at Harvard University, where he's professor of human evolutionary biology. He's written highly readable books on the evolution of the human body and the human head. His latest book, the topic of our conversation, is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with forensic anthropologist Sue Black, more properly Baroness Black of Strom. She's not only brilliant and dedicated in helping solve some terrible crimes, including the massacres in Kosovo. But she's also one of the most empathic people I've ever met. And she's a great storyteller. That first time when you walk into a dissecting room, and the, the big dissecting room we had in Aberdeen University had about 50 or nearly 60 glass tables with a body on each table, and each body covered by a white sheet. And you walk into that room as an 18-year-old, and it's really very daunting because it's not just what you see, it's what you smell as well because it's, it's the embalming fluid. And then somehow you've got to find the courage to pull back the sheet to see a dead body, often for the first time you've ever seen a dead body, let alone been in a room full of it. 
and then you're expected to try and put a fiddly little blade onto a scalpel handle without cutting your own fingers. And then you're expected to cut through human skin. And it's terrifying. And your, your fear before you start is almost crippling. But the minute you start to peel the skin back and you start to see all the wonders that are underneath, the most important thing is you forget to be scared. But it never leaves you. That first moment never, ever leaves you. Sue Black, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Ray Wynne Grant. She lives what to me sounds like a hair-raising life studying large carnivores, like black bears and mountain lions. She's just begun work on a new conservation area on the California coast. And this is really, really special because very few places in the world, if any, are we seeing bears and mountain lions primarily feeding on marine food resources. And so it's up to me to figure out, is this, you know, an age old pattern, you know, have these animals been doing this in this part of California, you know, since they arrived here thousands of years ago? Or is this something that's really brand new because they've been pushed to these extremes because of, you know, so much habitat destruction elsewhere? So it's really this, I mean, I'm geeking out about it, but I think it's a fascinating ecological set of questions. Um, and I feel so honored that I am, you know, leading the way with this research. Ray Wynne Grant, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alder. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.